Hello and welcome to Better Under Pressure. I'm Sarah Milne-Rowe, author of The Shed Method and founder of Coaching Impact. And in this podcast, I talk to leaders from all walks of life about being better under pressure and using pressure for better. I want to explore how we handle pressure in a world that is becoming more and more complex, the impact that that pressure has on our ability to perform at our best and what we do to be better under pressure. My biggest uh, fear, I would say, and even to this day, is regret. And so when I talk about survival, I think that having regret is just not an option for me. And so wondering what if, not answering the call, that is all survival, as if anything else. And so as we also bring that into pressure, hey, as the pressure mounts, None of it really matters because I don't want to have any regrets. My biggest tool that I've managed pressure with is I don't ever want pressure to be the reason that I failed or we didn't perform. Like that, that is just a decision I made early on. It will not be because I got scared or nervous and didn't perform. Today, I'm talking to Matt Chavlovich, who for over 30 years has been a leader in both the world of sport and the world of business. After a much-fated career as a prolific goalkeeper and captain in professional soccer in the US, he moved from the changing room into the boardroom and has since held leadership positions in organisations ranging from the MLS and Hasbro to Adidas and the American Cancer Society. After hanging up his boots, he opted for trainers and has since completed marathons as well as Ironman challenges in the US and Europe. In our conversation, Matt shares the transferable skills of sport in business, why he has no time for regrets, and how the 14-year-old Matt dealt with adults telling him not to come home if he'd lost the match. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I have goosebumps. I'm excited. Thrilled to be here. Excellent. Go on then, kick us off with, I mean, we're going to talk more about the way you have dealt with pressure through your life. But Matt, what I'm really interested in is, can you remember when you first felt it or experienced pressure that you actually thought, okay, this is my first experience of pressure? The thing that comes, that one of the first experiences with pressure that comes up for me is um, joining a team. So I was a footballer, mm-hmm. soccer player coming up and joining a team where the history was insurmountable, where people didn't make mistakes, where people where where just the tradition won games for them. I mean, from early on, I was part of clubs and teams that um, were sought out, were national champions, were hadn't lost in decades. And um, one of my earliest memories is literally having a coach describe one team that lost one game as the disaster season. And I, I'll never forget that really opened my eyes to, wow, that, that is something I don't ever want to be known as or a part of. And so I think at that point, and a lot of it, is out of my control. But at that point, I kind of made a decision that I was going to make sure that I had nothing to do. If that was going to be my fate, I was going to have nothing to do with that. I was not going to be the reason. For it to be named a disaster if one game was lost. That's right. 
So, so whatever, whatever I needed to do to hang my head high and, and be proud of who I was and how I showed up and what I brought to the table, I was going to do that to never, to, to basically get even on the other side of the result that even if we did lose, that you could not, um, say that I didn't air it out and give it everything. So already you have fast tracked us into a response of high stakes, mm. strong reputation, big brand that went before it, and you're joining this team as a goalkeeper. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And, and we're talking, uh, I was 14. I was 14. And literally had adults that I really respected <laughs> say to me, hey, come back with a win or don't come back. As a fourteen-year-old, and wow. um, and and I looked at them with shock, with utter shock. Like, and as a fourteen-year-old to an adult, I, I didn't have any choice except to, you know, figure out how to perform with that pressure. What else was I going to say? Argue about how I'm still valuable if I don't. Mm. Um, so, so I figured yeah. it out. When you say, you know, you have no choice other than to respond to that in a positive way, I'm not sure everyone would have said that in that situation, Matt. Um, and it's interesting because I don't even look at it as my response is positive. I look at it as my response is productive. Um, I think that you could be right. I'm not going to project. I don't know. Um, I felt like I didn't have a choice. Okay. And I think that is actually one of the biggest ways I've carved my mindset, my tool on how to deal with pressure. I mean, as a goalkeeper, there's a lot that you have to just let go of and you don't have a choice. You have to perform. When you're running into a tunnel with 30,000 fans, You, the way I look at things is efficiency. I am here to get a job done. I don't have a choice then to focus. I don't have a choice then to show up. Like I don't really give myself or my mind the option, anything negative coming in, anything of what could happen if we fail, anything that becomes inc incredibly inefficient. And I think over my course of my career from playing to triathlons to um, just efficiency on energy. And that, that yeah. can mean, that can mean body. That can mean mind. That can be spirit. Just the things I think about things I do. Maybe it becomes everything and I become surgical on how I spend my energy. And if it's not going to help me perform, it has no space in, in me. Was that taught to you, that approach? No, I think it was survival. I think, no, I, I think that, no, it was survival. I, I very early became my own psychoanalyst. Um, I'd read all the books. I would study professional athletes. I mean, growing up, I studied Gretzky. I studied Michael Jordan. I studied, you know, people that I thought were great leaders, um, even presidents in the U.S. Um, and at that time, maybe they were good. Um, I studied leadership. I studied professionalism. I studied athletes that I respected. And then I, because to me, it was for survival. Um I also, I was always motivated by doing things that other people haven't done before. 
Mm-hmm. And so I, I've always been the youngest one on the team, even a lot of times the most inexperienced on the team, but also been handed a lot of rights, whether it's playing goal, whether it's being captain in your second season, whether it's things like that. Um, and so for me, it was, it was just survival. It wasn't taught. It was, it was almost challenged. And then I just said, okay, I have to answer this call. And so I'm a big believer in leadership, whether it be corporate or in teams in healthy challenges and calling people forward Mm -hmm. in a way Mm -hmm. that's motivating in a simple way of, I had this available for you. I believe in you come and get it. I always Mm. responded to that. So there, so that, so I think that's, that in itself is a really helpful ingredient you've just articulated there is this you're being called forward I believe in you now come play right and I think that that's that's something you're calling out in terms of leaders attracting you to want to go into that level Uh, of performance you're absolutely right you know and it started out with me telling a little bit of stories of of intensity but Mm -hmm. I will also say those leaders led into me a belief in me before I even had it you know they they would they would call me forward and 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 see what I didn't even see yeah yeah hey you have the potential to be better than any of them yeah you nobody's ever seen what you just did and I wouldn't even accept that and so then they would keep calling me forward <laughs> they would, yeah. yeah they they would they would give me the they would give me the the armband you know yeah. and whatnot so um but i think what you're talking about there is so interesting because i i i so agree with this matt because I, you know having spent 13 years in very challenging comprehensives with a variety of young people from different backgrounds and different ex- uh, experiences and circumstances i I realized that actually if you had more faith than they had in what they could achieve or in the potential they could reach, it was like such a galvanizing force for most of them, not everyone, Mm -hmm. but for most of them. And you were sort of testing their capacity for that belief, but you had to hold it slightly one step ahead of them. Um, And I I mean, even in my own life, you know, to be better at violin and to be better at dancing, it was because I had teachers that were constantly taking me to a level of push that felt invigorating so I think it's what what I'm sort of hovering over is your word of survival versus the idea of pressure being progressive and efficient of use of energy which I I really can understand and relate to and the thing that's knocking me off a bit is this idea of survival so yeah same so here's yeah so here's one so my biggest uh fear, I would say, and even to this day is regret. And so when I talk about survival, I think that having regret is just not an option for me. And so wondering what if not trying, not answering the call, that is all survival as if anything else. And so as we also bring that into pressure, Hey, as the pressure mounts, none of it really matters because I don't want to have any regrets. I don't ever my biggest tool that I've managed pressure with is I don't ever 
want pressure to be the reason that I failed or we didn't perform. Like that, that is just a decision I made early on. I will not, it will not be because I got scared or nervous and didn't perform. Like, and I, I just decided with that, but yeah, I think survival, it's more just, it's more just around regret. I knew what it felt like, um, to go home. I think I, I did it wrong a couple times and enough times. I knew what it felt like to fold under, under pressure, mm. whereas I would never allow that to happen again. And, and I would always be very good at projecting myself into the future saying, how will I feel tomorrow morning? when I'm out of this stadium, when the marathon's over, when I'm out of this pain, there will be a day when this is over. Mm-hmm. How do you want to feel then when you look back? And I would always bring myself to that place. And, oh, I want to feel proud of myself. I don't want, I don't want to say I quit. I don't want to say that I was intimidated. I don't want to say it. So I would imagine the morning after. Mm-hmm. Can you remember, I mean, you've you've said books and things that really fired your sense of what performing with pressure could mean. Mm. And the people that do that in your view very well. I'm really intrigued to know what else was it? Can Can you take yourself back to think, when do you remember being sparked by that ambition to keep like using pressure as a force for improvement and becoming even better at what you do? Um, I would say, yeah, I mean, I would say uh, Michael Jordan had a, had a really big effect on me. He seemed machine-like, but also playful and creative. Um, he seemed like nothing could stir him and he always would perform. Like he always would perform and he always wanted it. And so when you can witness people actually wanting things that others don't, I I got really inspired by that. It it allowed me to imagine myself. I'm like, wow, he, he doesn't look nervous at all. He's actually asking for it. And so that is kind of, he was a big influence on me. Um, I will also say, and this is a controversy one, and I like having this conversation. Um, Lance Armstrong had a huge, his books were hugely inspiring to me. And regardless what people think about him, he still had to put in the work. And the work and the pain and the things that he was willing to endure was inspiring. How he went about it, that's a whole nother thing. And people have their own opinions respecting you, whatever, but, and that's fine. But he still demanded his body and his, he still demanded a a level of performance out of himself, regardless what helped him get there. And um, I don't endorse cheating in any way, but mentally, it's still a mental game that he endured. So those two actually at the time were very influential to me. Mm Yeah. Yeah. And this mental strengthening that you're referring to, mm-hmm. how did you hone it? I mean, we'll come on to how you now use it because these things, I, I believe, never leave you and you adapt it and you make it make sense for your life as it is now. But, you know, if you if you were to take us through, right, pressure moment coming up as a 14-year-old, as a 24-year-old, I don't know, but ha- give us an example of what you actually do to hone that mindset into that place 
Well, first of all, early on, I learned what I enjoyed. And what I enjoyed was doing what people didn't expect. And so I would, and I've gotten very quick at it over the years, I would figure out what was expected. I would figure out how most people operate. And I enjoy not being most people. And so what do you expect of a 14-year-old? You expect them to take three to four years to feel into it, to kind of get their confidence to learn it, right? So I would just kind of say, what's what's the traditional path? And then I would say, what's the opposite? Like, what would actually be if I was the first or what if I was to pave a new path? And I would actually visualize it. I, I literally, at that age, would spend at least 30 minutes visualizing it and I would create some rituals. Um and just how I dropped into that space of doing something that was against the norm. And then I honed that muscle. And so in an instant, I can walk into any room and say, okay, how do most people operate in this room? And I, I'll, I'll do something different. Does that always work now? Does that work now? So I can absolutely see how that works as a goalkeeper, Matt, because you're trying to second guess. So they Mm -hmm. don't, they don't um, anticipate what you're going to do. Sure. I can apps that makes total sense to me. What happens as you get older with that? So belief? now now um now it becomes about connection really. So it becomes about connection, it becomes about going and it becomes about depth. So when I walk into a room, um it'll usually be around how can I connect in a deeper way? How can I communicate in a clear way? How can we go deeper and go someplace that they don't usually go? Because now the work is really how can we create a conversation, create a room, create an experience that they've never had before. If if I'm, I'm actually not interested in doing anything else except that. So whether I'm talking one-on-one to a friend, to a client, to a group, I only want to do something and help them go somewhere that they've never gone before. That's what keeps it interesting for me. If we're going to sit there and do what they always do, um, it's just not exciting for me. And so that's what I meant early on is I learned what I liked. Yeah. I liked seeing what would happen if, and, and, and I, you know, what would happen if I actually was confident in this situation, if I actually did slow down without having the experience, if I actually did own this stage even though it's my first time on it like I was very good at creating visuals of outcomes that I wanted and when you say that is that literally in your mind's eye or do you literally create a visual that you can connect to that reminds you of that ambition or that end yeah. no I do. do, do? I, I, I do I visualize it I, I literally say how do I want this to go I will see it and then I will reverse engineer it. And what I mean by that is what are the qualities that I need to represent in order for that to happen? So if I'm giving these days, if I'm giving a speech, I will write the speech probably five times. I will imagine myself giving it and then I will simply say, what are the qualities that I need to represent. And it'll usually be confidence, 
clarity and conviction. Those are usually my three. And then I'll forget everything. I will let go of everything I've ever written. I will not read. I will not use my slides. And I will simply focus on being confident, clear, and convicted. And whatever comes out of me uh, will be right. Because when I don't do that, I'm connected to words that were my words yesterday or last month. And in that moment, what I've learned is when I'm inspired, I inspire people. So like what lights me up is actually the energy of confident, clear, and convicted. That'll control my pace, that'll control my energy, and that'll control kind of the my belief that I speak with. And that's all I need. The words don't matter when you have those three. Has that been, have those three words, you said, you know, you can recreate mm-hmm. not yesterday's, but now and the futures. But when you say that, Matt, it feels like that's been part of you for a long time. Those three words, like when you were a goalkeeper, I mean, like those mm. three words seem to, you seem to say those three words as if they've been very strong friends and buddies for a long, long time. I, I think that's valid. I think that is valid. Um, and I'm trying to go back there. I mean, for I'd say for the last 15 years since I've been in corporate coaching and speaking, those are the three words. I will say I check in with them all the time and they, I always end up in the same place. Um, when I was playing, yeah, there's always a version of them. Um, but yes, I think that confidence, clarity, yeah, and conviction. Yeah. I mean, they're, yeah. I think, I think when I was younger, it was probably around um, be unshakable and things okay. like that, but different yeah, yeah. words, different words and mean yeah. very similar things. But now, Yeah, now that's how I perform, I would say. So hang on, I have to stop here for a minute to gather up a few of these powerful personal practices that Matt's sharing. He mentions connecting to what lights him up, to call him forward into the pressure. I love this. What he actually says though is, I simply connect to what lights me up. Well, it really isn't simple to connect to what lights us up when we're under pressure, unless of course we've worked out what will fast track us there beforehand. And for Matt, it's three words, confidence, clarity, and conviction. When he taps into those three words, he's able to feel in control of his pace, energy, and belief. Over time, those words have clearly become for Matt an essential part of his ritual before any performance or pressure moment. The three words that support me in moments of pressure, because I've been thinking about this, were actually pointed out to me by a friend as they literally fell out of my mouth years ago in a conversation. I'd been in a challenging discussion and when I was describing it to him, I blurted, do you know what? I wish I'd just remain curious, light and solution focused. And right there and then, it was as if my friend caught those words and offered them back to me like jewels in a gift. Those three words still support me in moments of pressure. And to have these words ready in our pocket when we need them, we have to know them in advance. What are yours? Which three words would connect you to what lights you up and as Matt says, call you forward. I'm really interested in the role of the physical in this as well, because mm. often when you're when, when I'm talking to leaders or we're talking to leaders or teams, you know, there's there's, there's um, a resonance in physical sport often that the people have experienced it outside of work, and often it's about transferring a mindset that they've had or do have outside into a work-related pressure potentially. Um, 
with your background in such strong physical achievement, mm. how do you use that? Do you use that? What's the, I suppose the, the simple question is, what's the role of the body in your ability to deal and be better under pressure now? Oh, it's so your body's a vessel. So everything's energy. So how you should, it, it's not just a mind game and your, your vessel, how fit you are is body, mind, spirit in my mind. Mm -hmm. And if one is very healthy and the mm -hmm. other is not, it's really a net zero. And so your tool, communication, connection, impact, whatever you're trying to do is, is only going to be good as just how, how what fit your body is, your mind is, and your spirit is. And so that's how I look at it. The body is a generator of energy. You absolutely can change your energy. And Tony Robbins talks a lot about this. You can change your state with your physiology, which is absolutely mm -hmm. true. Throw yeah. your shoulders back. They, you know, start breathing differently. Yeah. So all of that is energy. And we're talking about stepping into a certain level of power, a certain level of influence and communication and confidence. Well, how would you ever do that if you don't know how to use your body? You're not proud of your body. Hmm. And I say that as a challenge to everybody that you don't have to, you know, get ripped. But professionalism, and really, if you want to perform at a high level, you've got to show up that way with that professionalism, that commitment in all areas. It affects how you eat. It affects how you sleep. It affects mm -hmm. how you speak. It affects who you relate with. And so it's very hard to be a master. And I was always into mastery. It's very hard to be a master. If you just actually focus on one area of your life, those values, those, those disciplines need to carry throughout. And I think that was always one of my strongest strengths is discipline. Mm -hmm. And when you went from a disciplined environment of the, the elite sport that you were playing and the running that you've done mm -hmm. and the pushing that you've done to achieve these literally goals, physical goals, when you went into corporate life, was there a shift for you? Did you have to adapt anything, Matt? Did you have to like recalibrate slightly some of the emphasis that you placed on certain things? What was that jump like? So I am all in on answering that question, but can I just add something going back for a second? Because yeah. I think I think it's what it will serve. So I think what you're trying to get at is how how did you how did you do what you did? Like what, what was the main thing? And I will tell you that curiosity was my greatest thing. I wanted to know what would happen if. So you put a 14-year-old on a team where the next youngest is 19, right? What would happen if I showed up as I was 19? What would happen if I didn't care about experience and just showed up and believed in myself? Um, when I would train for Ironman, it was a, it was a nine-month training program. The only thing that got me up at 4.30 in the morning in the pool was, what would happen if I actually committed to this full end for nine months? I just wanted to know what life would look like, what, what, what would become possible, what I would feel like. You walk into a boardroom or a speech, what would happen if? And so that curious just to find out what would that be? Because we all know what happens if a 14-year-old goes in, feels like a 14-year-old. Yeah. 
or if you start the training plan and then take a, a cheat day every now and then. But I just, I, I wanted to know what would happen in these scenarios that literally people don't have the, I don't, don't know. So curiosity was a huge one. Yeah. Um, and just on that, I think, Matt, what I'm hearing is it's not just curiosity. It's what you do with that curiosity. So, I mean, I hear lots of people say, what if? Oh, well, well that's what drives me. There. But my curiosity to find out is what drove me. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so that that's the whole thing. Right. Um, One of the I know one of the first connections that you and I had, I don't even think we knew each other that well, but one of our counterparts in a group we're in was talking about their nervousness and giving a speech and that there was going to be a lot of eyes on them. And, and I think she used the word pressure. There's a lot of pressure. And so I don't know how to focus. I, I I remember that was brought in and I remember I I said publicly, I said, I, I don't know what you're talking about because as pressure increases, my focus increases pressure will never be greater than my focus. That, that that's just my thing. If pressure ever gets greater than your focus, you're in trouble. But the more pressure, the more surgical you get and the more laser focused you get. It was a bit of a tumbleweed moment at that point, I remember. And actually, I'm really, really glad you brought that up because anyone listening to this, that is why I wanted Matt to come on this podcast, because there was a moment there that it was like, no, you couldn't hear anything after you said it. And it's just such an interesting concept, you know. That whole idea of no pressure is bigger than my focus. That reigned in my ears for days after you said that, Matt. It was really helpful. Well, so let's let's bring it back to what I've already shared. There's a job to do. Yeah. Not doing that job, and that job is performing. That job is just giving your best. Yeah. But there's a job to do. And so getting that job done and giving your all to it, that always needs to be above all the other distractions. Like it, it, I can't get there where it's not. And so as the pressure increases, hey, there's a thousand people, not a hundred. Okay, the job's still the same. Hey, so-and-so, this bad news, or so-and-so, this bad news. Okay. But there's still the job and it doesn't change that. And so the job to get done, which is performing. And again, I'm not saying you have to be perfect, but I'm saying giving your all is performing. Mm. Instead of just give everything. That trumps all. And no other distraction goes above that ever. And the more distractions, the more sur- I use surgical, the more laser focused you get. Your focus needs to always be higher than the pressure. And I think that is a skill and a habit in itself you're talking about there, because, you know, in the current environment that a lot of leaders and, and organizations are operating in, there are constant distractions and there are constant mm-hmm. things that shift the plan, mm-hmm. or there are constant inputs into the decision that weren't there the week before, the day before, the hour before. Mm-hmm. And so that discipline of not just bringing your focus to the most important performance moment, but it's understanding which is the most perform, you know, important performance moment that I think is quite challenging for, for many leaders right now. You're dead on. You're dead on. I, I think that a lot of people struggle and they they operate at the same cadence and same energy level yes. in all things. Yeah. And that's that's yeah. the miss. You've got to understand on when you need to show up 
Yeah. Yeah. And when you can not, and, and, and that is, that's an art 100%. And that I think has to do with not only opportunity, but also a clear understanding of what your gifts and your value are. Yeah. And, and letting go of your ego of saying, Oh, I need to bring it here when really this isn't your place. Maybe this isn't your magic, mm-hmm. but when it is, you need to show up here. Yeah. And that might also tie in with when we were talking very much about sort of our corporate existence or our sport existence, but it might, it's also your personal life, the people that you love, the people in your, you know, the, the things you want to show up and be at your best with. And that might mean compromising a decision that you're making you know, another part of your life. So mm-hmm. I really, I really do hear what you're saying there around it has to fit with your values and what actually really, really matters to you. And that's a defining filter. I, absolutely. But then it's also a connector. Um, yeah. It really does show people who you are and what you're about. And, and that consistency is, is what also impacts as much as anything. Yeah. Take us now as to what you did with that stuff when you hit corporate life. Did did it feel surprising that other people, you know, you were suddenly then working? Because I imagine I've never worked, I've never been part of an elite sports team, by the way. But I imagine in the same way as when you're in a show, you know, people are, you, you believe that people have been hired for their talent, that, that, you know, they're in that show because there's been a filter mm-hmm. process and everyone's in it together. And I suppose it's a similar it's a similar field to a team. When you go to an organization, that's not necessarily the case. Um, a, because it's a bigger pool and also because there's lots of competing priorities. It's not just one game or one show. So how did that work for you, taking that discipline, that focus, that end game, the hmm. team going towards one thing at a time? How did that work going into a corporation for you? I didn't necessarily focus on the goal. I focused on the people. If you think about a team, if you're on the pitch or if you're hired, you deserve you deserve to be there and so that just do your job. If you're the midfielder and I'm the goalkeeper, I'm not going to try to score goals. You do your job, I'll do mine. And that was my always my approach in corporate. You're here for a reason. My job is to develop you and make you better. My big speech always was, my job is to make you better. And so then I would deliver whatever message I need to deliver, easy or hard. As long as it came with that intention, it was received well. But I I, I wanted to give them the confidence that you're, you were hired for a reason and for a job. And I am going to give you the full uh, freedom to do that. I think where a lot of people get it wrong is they they step in and you try to play multiple positions and it's like, well, if you don't want them on your field then don't bring them in. So I think that's how I approach it is how can mm. I actually give people the freedom to do the job they were hired for and also believe in them in a way that they didn't mm. believe, they don't believe in themselves. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is by uh, truthfully, a lot of that, the way I did it was um, reducing access to me. I would not necessarily um, give them the answers that they came to me for. Oftentimes I would say, you don't need me for that. And I was very disciplined in only doing the things that only I could do because of my position versus anything less than that. If a lot of people come and they want some validation, Hey, here's what I'm thinking. Okay. 
you don't need me for that decision. Or I would tell them I'm not going to this meeting because they don't need me. So I was very, um, I would go on the edge of pushing them into their discomfort um, versus I think, I think a lot of managers, unfortunately, handicap people by being too involved. And this was all around, I think this is all around efficiency and energy on my part. The mm -hmm. more energy I give to doing things that they don't need me for, the less energy I have for doing the, the things that only I can do. And did that ever backfire, that approach, in terms of them raising their performance? Or would you say it was universally an approach that really worked well and did raise their performance, holding them, in my words, holding them able and also reducing your access? It really never did. <laughs> it really, it really never did because they all stepped up and they all respected my belief in them. And, um, they, yeah, they either all learned to swim or at times it weeded out the ones that shouldn't be there, but that's right. fine. But it really didn't because all I was trying to do was improve people. And, and the more you can improve the individual, the more you'll improve the team. And so, and I was better too, because I, you know, if I was tasked with some of the more impactful decisions, I had more mental capacity for those decisions and performances. Mm -hmm. And so um, it really did. I think it really created clear roles and responsibilities and clarity and allowed people to actually develop much quicker than when you handhold them. It's no different than putting a 14-year-old in goal and handing him the armband and saying, you've got this. Mm -hmm. And then just rolling the ball out and it goes where it goes. So what would you do? And maybe this is more, you know, what do you do when friends or employees or people you work alongside or colleagues or even your children, mm -hmm. you witness them? having problems with pressure or 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 yep. you see that they're struggling or they they're they're feeling pressure that you're not feeling sure what do you do so there was one question i i ask everybody religiously when they're struggling with anything and it's what do you stand for what do you stand for if you're struggling to make a decision if you don't know what to do if you're nervous i will always say what do you stand for and then they'll give me an answer and I'll say, great, go do what a person that stood for, stands for that would do. All the time I would have people come in and say, this happened and I don't know what to do. Should I tell them or should I not? What do you stand for? I stand for professionalism or honesty. Okay. What would somebody that stand for professionalism or honesty do? I was always trying to bring people into alignment with who they were. And when they can do that, then decisions become easy. Oh, that's so interesting, Matt, because actually what you've been talking about so far since 14 is a sense of identity, actually. Like what, what's radiated out of this story for me is as, as a 14-year-old, even probably before you were 14, actually, you knew what you wanted to stand for. Um, and you were clear about the things that fired you up. Um, and that feels like a a very clear thread throughout everything that you've shared. So now when you're in a position of leadership, you return to the thread that worked in a way or helped you manage pressure, which was knowing what you stood for. 
and and being somebody that had no regrets and just was curious about if you didn't do it the way everybody else did it, what would happen? I mean, I, I stand for possibility, right? I stand for uh, possibility is a big one and, and just and giving everything. Um, those, are, those are two ones. But I think a lot of times, and I'll get back to your question about people struggling with pressure, but um, a lot of times people want the answers from others. And I think you just need to bring them back to themselves. And and who do you want to be in the world? Like, what do you want your reputation to be? What do you want people to say about you? And bring it down to one or two words and let that guide you. Let that guide you. That's it. You can't get it wrong. And I think oftentimes we ask other people what those words should be. Who should I be? How should I be? But they can't answer that because they're not the ones putting their head on the pillow at night. So what do you stand for? I stand for this. And then you challenge them. Great. Then stand in that. You want to be professional and honest. Great. Then what do you do? And some people, some people will fold because they, they don't want to stand for that, but they want to stand for inclusion. They want to stand for being liked. Okay. Just tell me if that gets you what you want. But um, for everybody that wants to be a leader, when pressure shows up, what would a leader do? And you're in whatever that means to you. Leading mm-hmm. does it mean yelling? Does it mean leading from behind? Does it mean being positive, being on? Like, what would they do? Um, for those struggling with pressure, which was your question earlier, there's a couple questions I would ask. One, have you been here before? My guess is yes. You've been here before. Remind yourself that you have. Remember what happened. Maybe it went great. Maybe it didn't. If it didn't, then let's try something new. If it did, then let's rinse and repeat. But, you know, to get really deep, where's the pressure coming from? The pressure is coming from from self risk of self-worth or self-value and you can go into why that is but at the end of the day the quickest hack i have is what if you felt the pressure and performed anyway what Mm. if it didn't matter just drop into that that question what if you felt the pressure and performed anyway reminds me of an interview i listened to this week with leslie patterson She's a professional triathlete turned screenwriter whose film All Quiet on the Western Front has multiple nominations at this year's Oscars. Not only was it 16 years between her first acquiring the rights and the film actually getting made, but at one point in that 16 years, she entered a triathlon knowing that she had to win because the prize money would keep the project afloat. The fact she broke her shoulder the day before the race was simply not even an obstacle. She went ahead and competed. Swimming, I mean, how do you even do that with a broken shoulder? Cycling, running, and winning the race. Despite the pressure of a broken shoulder, she performed anyway. Now, I know this is an extreme example, but all the way through this conversation with Matt and listening to Leslie, I'm once again reminded of this strong connection between physical endurance and building your mental endurance in what is possible. Leslie said, and I'm not gonna attempt the Scottish accent, but she said, Sport is an exercise in resilience and so is film. I spent my whole life training six, seven, eight hours a day and the perseverance I developed through that, I just applied to this project. 
It's about pivoting on a bad situation and asking, how can I turn it around and make it positive? See, we all have transferable skills from different parts of our life that we often underestimate and that we can tap into. But the source that both Matt and Leslie refer to is belief. Matt talked about the impact of adults in his life believing in him before he even did and how that now shows up in his own belief and in the way he leads others. And Leslie won a triathlon with a broken shoulder because she believed so much in the story that she wanted to keep alive. What both their stories are bringing up for me is that when we can power up belief, we can really power up our focus and allow it, as Matt says, to be higher than any pressure. So there's a couple of things that I'm really intrigued about. I'm going back to your role as a goalkeeper and the sort of the dependency on oneself that sits with a goalkeeper. So I often talk to teams about, you know, how do you build the sort of sense of a home team when you're all, you know, striving on the pitch together or in a show together and you've all got a shared intent. So you have the same shared intent as the team, Matt, but you're physically separated. Mm-hmm. You can only depend on your own performance. No one's going to uh, get you out of saving a goal. Mm-hmm. It's you. It's down to you. Mm-hmm. That And my experience, limited as it is, I haven't known you that long, but there's a sense of um, uh, maverick about you, I would say. <laughs> so this this sense of this value of, How can I surprise people? How can I be different? How can I not do the expected? I can imagine that maybe that's difficult for some people that you might work alongside as well. Is that, how does that land? And I say that. Uh, I would say not difficult can be exhausting. Okay. That's that's probably the word that I hear more than anything because I I live very intentionally. I live very um, I live very intentionally, and some people will say this is exhausting, and I will say that that's great. I mean that's fine. I just if you my favorite question is what do you want? Why don't you have it yet? And if you don't have what you want yet, if you're not showing up in the way that you want yet, then let's change something. And um, and that's that's always my biggest challenge. Yes, people people at times think I'm intense. People at times say you are always challenging. Yeah, because I know that you don't have what you want yet. And so I'm going to constantly give you the invitation to be called forward whenever, no judgment, if it takes you a day, a week, or a year, or never. But yes, I um I have been called exhausting at times. <laughs> with gratitude with gratitude but you know the big thing is but the big thing is you know if you want to be in the one percent you need to do things that only one percent will do you need to think in ways that only one percent do and and so i'm not in the one percent who knows in anything really but but i strive to be but if you want to create different results you've got to operate differently and the thing that i've learned and this is me this doesn't have to be for everybody but my desire to do things different and wow people um it's not even a performance thing it lights me up but in corporate it's the same in romantic relationships i tell people all the time i want to have the relationship that everybody's envious of 
that everyone's like, oh my gosh, that can be a thing. Like I'm fine being the example because that puts me in the driver's seat. That puts me in the creator's seat. So I make my own rules. I put the pressure on myself to perform because I'm the one that needs to experience it. So as you, as we, as we hone these tools, they serve us in all areas of our life, I would say. Do you take, how does this relate to your personal life? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think it, it goes alongside of what I just said, where I'm in constant creation mode. I'm in constant, like what is possible mode, right? So my, my goal in my personal relationships is that there's no limit to the connection and intimacy that we can experience. And so it's kind of the same framework. There's no limit to what can be achieved in corporate or, you know, physically or mentally or emotionally. And so it's the same framework. Like just why do we ever put restraints on ourselves? I don't, I don't believe in that. And then I reverse engineer it. Well, what would that take? Well, I'll take a certain level of communication, certain level of commitment to time, mm -hmm. to emotional regulation, to understanding the other. And so I just kind of say, okay, for there be, to be no limits and constantly going deeper, who do I need to be? What, how do I need to show up? And I don't always get it right, but then I stick with that question. Okay, I screwed up. How would somebody that wants to do it different operate? Well, mm -hmm. they'd say, sorry. They'd say, tell me more. Help me understand you. So it really is the same framework, just, just in a different room. So I, I really feel like there's a fundamental belief in this that pressure allows you to be better. Completely. Completely. It allows you, going back to pressure will never be bigger than my focus. Mm. So now, look, after, after being in the game for a while, um, my focus remains without the pressure. Pressure is not, pressure's not really a thing anymore. And I just hold a very high level of focus. Um, so yes, pressure, I think, is allows you to narrow your scope of commitment to what you're trying to do. Mm. And at the end of the day, what we're all trying to do is be the thing we stand for. That's it. Mm. So that would be my challenge. It's my challenge to myself. That would be a challenge to everybody. What are you really trying to do? Oh, I'm trying to be that thing that I said I stand for. And so as the distractions, as the pressure, as the audience, as the whatever comes in, great, stand for that here. When you say it, Matt, it sounds so easy. And yet I know that it's not that easy. <laughs> Actually, it's simple. It sounds simple. It sounds simple, easy. but it's, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. It sounds simple, but complex or, sure. or certainly, you know, it takes, it takes effort. So I'm thinking, you know, how many people what myself included you know you're going up for something and you've got these negative voices that are saying but you know oh maybe what so the what if is often what if i 
mess but up? What if? So how do you how do you interrupt that? How have you learned to interrupt that? Because it's never ending. It's present always. It's a constant decision. So let's play. Sarah, what do you stand for? One thing. Oh, okay. I you stand. Change. You can I change stand, your answer after. Give me one. I stand for hope. Beautiful. I'm going to pause you there. And possibility. I know Great. Huh? Perfect. 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 Hope and possibility. Great. You go into the room for the big speech. I'm going to, what would somebody stand for hope and possibility do? You would deliver it a certain way. You fall off the stage. Your nose is bleeding. It's the same question. What would somebody that stands for hope and possibility do? Your mic goes out. You forget what the hell you're even saying. Great. What would somebody stands for hope and possibility do? You do it great. Great. What would somebody that stands for hope and possibility It's the same question always, mm. no matter how it's moment by moment. And what we do is we think that standing for hope and possibility, we, we need a certain outcome. And it's a presence. Yeah, I it's totally as get we get that. Yeah. dealt the cards. So it's like sitting at the blackjack table. All right, I'm going to stand for hope and possibility. Great. Now you got the cards. What are you going to do with this deck? Now what are you going to do with this hand? What are you going to do with this hand? It's a constant standing in something is 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 being it. And the more we announce that this is what we stand for, the more the universe is going to give us challenges with that. But that's our that's our work. That's our job. So stand in hope and possibility when you just lost your job, you're face down, and you lost three clients. Great. Keep standing it. Mm. And, and so mm. that that that's it. So as people screw up or as people do great, the role is to continue to focus on that thing, on who you want yeah. to be. And then pressure doesn't matter. It's it's so interesting actually because we I had um, somebody called Sebastian on the on the podcast a few um, months ago or a month ago before Christmas, and he had a similar thing actually. He said every time I got a negative thought, I put it in my phone and then I close my phone, it's gone, and then I come back to it and I go, okay, what if that did happen? Mm. What would I do? What would I do? What would I do? What would I do? So in a way, mm -hmm. training his brain and his attention to go to the the possibility of what is possible with that scenario mm -hmm. as opposed to allowing himself to get sucked down the um what if of anything going wrong closing his phone was very important to him it like closed that it's no longer got any space for it to rock around in your head you get rid of it you come back to it when you feel, okay, I want to open all those things now because I have answers to them or I'm going to discover answers to them. And I really love this bit about, you know, what, what works for people because it's all human stuff. It's just understanding, you use the word hack, you know, what, what is it that actually we can do um, that allows us to keep going forward with it and learn? Because to me, it's about learning. Completely. But then the other thing about like, at, you know, at this sport, I think is a little different, but when you get into corporate and you get everything else, so much is about connection. And yeah. so instead of denying these things, own them and still perform anyway. Wow. There's a lot of people here and it doesn't matter. Wow. Um, 
I'm late and just spilled something on my shirt and it doesn't matter. That's the guy or gal that I'm impressed with. And so, and that's what creates connection as well. Mm -hmm. Wow. I've just created deck and it's not turning on and it doesn't matter because I have everything I need. And so being able to own that, I think in a way creates connection and being, excuse me, being able to acknowledge the challenges, the distractions, and then letting people watch you not give a shit. Mm and perform anyway that's what creates possibility yes and i i also want to make the connection that i think you're making and i i believe strongly and you you described it when you said you write something out five times you understand who you want to be in the moment and then there comes a time when you let that go and you your focus is on the being not the doing but the being without understand so even when you are learning the skill of being of being a goalkeeper there's a there's a drill that sits underneath all of that. So when you are convict, when you have conviction, it's conviction on a foundation of discipline, actually. You know, I, when I when I went in to play the violin, you know, I'd done my scales, I'd done my practice over and over and over again, which gave me the liberty, which gave me the freedom to then play the piece in the way that I felt the piece. And I, I'm really intrigued in this. Like, if we believe that leadership is a skill which and a practice, it's you're, you're drawing people to, yes, do your drill, whatever that means, in order mm-hmm. to be skillful around it. But mm-hmm. ultimately, the ace card is the B question. Who do you want to be on top of that skill? You know. Yes, and then, and then believing fully and believe. that, that you can, right? Because a lot of people will go into training and – it can never be enough. I need to train more. I need to train more. I need to train more. Yeah. And then they'll, then they'll get sick or they'll get hurt and they'll just fall apart. Yes. And so how can you do enough? Yeah. Believe that whatever you've done is enough and yeah. then truly believe in your ability to be that thing in all instances. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing too is give yourself grace Allow yourself to fall, allow yourself to fail, allow yourself to, to be human and then ask yourself the same question. Yeah. Well, what would someone that stands for this again, from the mud do and be committed to your, to to what you stand for, be committed to it. You know, I, I often give a speech to my clients around the difference between perfection and commitment. Commitment, you fall off the horse, you get back on because you're committed to learning how to ride it. Perfection, you fall off the horse and you're like, I'm done. Can't do it. Yeah. And and perfection, burnout, those are all juvenile problems. Those are all those are all juvenile conversations. A true, my opinion, a true measure of professionalism and commitment and and commitment to mastery you don't burn out you don't try to be perfect you're playing a different game Mm. well that really resonates with the idea of you can't perform at your best without recovery (sighs) which you know is so important isn't it yes that is it's everything right i mean 
I gave a speech a couple of years ago and I, I said something that I learned from endurance training that it was just something I've said. I think it's the first time I ever said it and it was written about or quoted like 30 or 40 times and since then. And it's been fought. It's, it's been fascinating. When I uh, was training for Ironman in the training plan always was a day off. And early in my career, I wouldn't take the day off because I always felt like if I wasn't working, then I was falling behind. If I stopped training, somebody else was, and I was falling behind until I realized how muscles um, are mm. actually grow. Muscles grow when you use them. There's micro tears and then you let them rest and they grow bigger. And so instead of getting to a place where I could accept time off and not training, I actually started to look at rest as training. And I basically create a mantra that rest day is a training day. And I would rest with as much intention as I worked. And so I would lay on the couch. I watch football all day. And I would basically just, I would say, look, I'm resting my legs. I ran 20 yesterday. I'm resting my legs. And so in my mind, rest day is a training day. And, and your ability to rest as well as you work is a direct, um, it talks about your professionalism. Yeah. Gosh, that's such an important point right now i think that message yeah i mean i don't know why people can't rest as well as they work and again if your main goal is to perform it's all part of it yeah so, and it has to be modeled from the top it helps it helps um but i would say on that sarah that, that's what i would challenge too what if it wasn't? <laughs> yeah. What if it wasn't, right? Like, because we're giving our power away. We're giving an excuse. So if you're a middle manager and your managers takes no days off, right? The biggest thing in corporate these days is you have unlimited vacation, which is shown to be really detrimental because people only take vacation depending on their team leader. Mm -hmm. My invitation was, why? Like, you're falling falling into a cultural norm versus what would make you best. And when someone says, why do you take so much time off? Because that's what allows me to perform my best. Now you still need mm -hmm. to deliver, but if that's how you know you deliver then take the time off because that's what you're hired for is to deliver, yeah. not to yeah. be, be liked. Thank you, Matt. Hugely, uh, useful and insightful conversation so much in there and as you know i'm going to ask you if there were two things mm. that you would pass forward to anyone listening to this who wants to be better under pressure what two things stand out for you um i do love this question the first one i would go with we just talked about rest day is a training day mm-hmm Allow yourself, allow yourself that. If yeah. rest day was a training day, how would that change you? Um, and then the second one is the question of why not you? Do the work that allows you to be okay being the first, that allows you to step into the question of, why not you? Why can't you be the first? 
and really dig in what's holding you back from being okay, being the first. Because that level of confidence, you will change people's lives that you don't even know. I watched you do this. I, I saw that. And that is, you'll help people in ways that you never imagined. So do the work to allow yourself to be the first. And um, and you'll be in constant creation mode of a life you love. What a wonderful way to stop. Thank you, Matt, so much. That was incredibly fun. Thank you. I'm honored to just be able to serve your your community. I'm, I think it's incredible what you've created, and I love this conversation. And it's a real, you know, it's a real joy to be part of it. Well, I hope we can reconnect on the conversation later, Matt, as well. So, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Better Under Pressure with me, Sarah Milne-Rowe. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and let us know what you found useful or what you'd like to know more about. Our aim is to share as many examples as possible of what people do to manage pressure for better. If you're interested in any of the practices mentioned, check out my book, The Shed Method. Alternatively, you can find us at Coaching Impact or me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Better Under Pressure was produced by the fab team at Smart Cookie Media. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, goodbye.